evangelical Christians, we tend to be very hot on issues of sexuality and very blind often on other issues that the Bible is very hot on as well, such as poverty and injustice and oppression. I find that within our British culture very distressing. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Good afternoon. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Howes, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. You've joined us for The Profile, where we sit down with a different Christian every week to hear something of their life story and something of how God is using them in their ministry. I'm really pleased to say that my guest on the show this week is Christopher Wright. He is an Old Testament scholar and the Global Ambassador and Ministries Director of Langham Partnership ministry founded by John Stott that is committed to strengthening the majority world church. Chris is tasked with promoting the vision and work of Langham around the world through his international travel, his speaking and his writing ministry as a Christian scholar and author. He was previously academic dean and then principal of All Nations Christian College and is the author of a large number of books including The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative, and most recently, Hearing the Message of Ecclesiastes, and also The Great Story and the Great Commission, Participating in the Biblical Drama of Mission. Well, there's so much to talk about with Chris. Uh, Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on the program. Really look forward to hearing something of your story. Thank you, Sam. It's good to be with you. You're best known for being a writer and a scholar. Uh, delivering some pretty heavyweight books on big topics like mission. Is that something you aspired to from an early age? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I do remember enjoying being a, a little writer even as a child. I think, uh, like many young children, enjoy words. And uh, I do remember writing little essays and stories and things and uh, studying English. So yes, I mean, I've always enjoyed writing, but I never imagined myself being a, an, an author in that sense. Tell me a bit more about life growing up. Where were you in the world and at what point did the Christian faith come into the picture for you as a youngster? Well, very young indeed. Um, and uh, as people probably already recognise, the, the bit of the accent comes from Northern Ireland. I grew up in Belfast, a Belfast boy really. Um, yeah, and I, I grew up in a very godly Christian home. My parents had both been missionaries in Brazil. But uh, that was before I was born. They, they they were missionaries before the Second World War, and from my dad, actually from the mid-1920s to the mid-1940s. And then I was born just at, after the end of the Second World War when they came home with uh, three older siblings. So I grew up as the youngest child in a family of four, um, uh, probably spoiled. <laughs> but um, I, I certainly knew the Christian faith from a very early age. And I do remember, uh, I think it was about five or six, or somewhere about then anyway, when my older brother Paul asked if um, if my name was in the Lamb's Book of Life. <laughs> I think that's what the Sunday school teacher had been teaching about that Sunday. And I probably didn't quite know what I meant. he meant, so I asked. And he said, well, it's so that Jesus knows your name and that you can go to heaven and so on. So I said, well, how do I do that? And he said, well, you just need to ask him to forgive your sins and come into your heart and, and, and be, you know, and, and, that you, and then you will. So I did. And he has, and I've known that I was a, a Christian believer ever since. So really, by God's grace, all through my uh, childhood, teenage years, university and uh, adulthood, uh, I've been a follower of Jesus. And it's a great joy and a great privilege, great blessing. 
does strike me how amazing it is that that you can study the Bible at such a high level, academic level, the detail, going to original languages, and obviously there's so much life in that. And yet at the same time, the gospel is so simple that even a child can understand. Well, absolutely, and and I I really do believe that, and I think uh, it's why. Um, I, I wrote a little bit about that childhood story of my own growing up for my for my grandchildren, of whom we've my wife and I, Liz and I, have now got eleven, <laughs> stretching from uh, twenty one at the top down to three at the bottom. Uh, and I wanted them, I, even as children, to know that uh, what their grandfather, what their papa is as a Christian, is something that is also available for them as a child, uh, and is really very simple. And in, in that sense. The Bible too. I'm not suggesting the Bible is simple in the sense of just easy, but it is certainly the message of the Bible is a story that can be understood, appreciated, and internalized from a very young age. And you mentioned there that you had a childhood faith that developed and continued throughout your teenage years and, and into adulthood. I know for a lot of people that they have a bit of a, a wobble, let's say, around teenage years uh, into early adulthood with their faith. Was that your story or was it a bit more straightforward? bit more straightforward, actually, Sam. I, I mean, you're, you're right. I, I, many people do go um, way off the rails in their teens, and then, uh, by God's grace, many, of course, come back later. That wasn't my story, um, I'm afraid. There's nothing terribly sordid to put in there in, in my teens. Um, and I think that was partly due to the fact that both um, I had, you know, godly Christian parents and hugely respected my father and, and did not want, in a sense, to disappoint or be disloyal to him, also, that we were we belonged to a very good church. It was Berry Street Presbyterian Church in Belfast. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, although I'm now ordained in the Anglican Church. Uh, and it was a church where the Bible was taught regularly, and there was a very good youth ministry, which we participated in. So there were people teaching us the truths of the faith, and also what it meant to be a disciple. You know, that there were things that as, as a Christian young person you should do and things you shouldn't do, and uh, we took those seriously. I don't think that they were restricting in the sense of making life impossible. We enjoyed ourselves. We had great parties. We had good fun. I did sports. I had, in that sense, a, a very, my memory, <laughs> a very happy childhood and youth. Um, but uh, but there was a there was a Christianness about the discipline that we were taught as young people, uh, which I'm grateful for. You mentioned your parents were missionaries in in Brazil, and 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 as I say, a lot of your work has been about mission. Mm. Can you look back now, your early childhood and teens, and see the beginnings of a of an interest, not perhaps just in that topic, perhaps more broadly the the world, you know, an interest in other nations. In there's a there's a whole world out there. Your parents had travelled, you know, was was travel and experiencing other cultures and talking to people from other backgrounds. Was that something that was kind of there in, in your childhood as well? Well, yes, uh, indirectly. I, we, we, we didn't travel. I mean, you couldn't afford it in those days. <laughs> we didn't go all over the world. But because my father continued as a missionary secretary for the Unevangelized Fields Mission, was the, the name of the mission, um, he was getting letters from all over the world. And so I became an avid little stamp collector. <laughs> and uh, I so most of my knowledge of the world was in my imagination. Uh, I, all these stamps from different countries and a stamp album that told you something about those countries um, and and then remembering things like when the Gold Coast became independent and became Ghana and different stamps and so on. So that sense of a an international awareness of the of the rest of the world was there in my from from my childhood. Yes, and then also because of my my father's job as a mission secretary, 
Our home was often host to travelling missionaries or indeed um, people from those countries. I remember having some wonderful African people in our home from uh, from the, from the Congo or Zaire as it was at that time, and from Brazil. Uh, so there was an international flavour certainly to growing up. Then I loved geography at school. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, that that was there was part of my upbringing and childhood, and I think also it was. Therefore, you've kind of felt, well, mission is not something extraordinary. It's it's just, it's a part of almost normal Christian life that God is going to call some people into cross-cultural mission. But we were also taught that, yes, but all of us are called to mission in the sense of being ambassadors for Christ wherever we are in life. And so uh, some of us are called to go overseas, some of us are called to stay at home and work here. Wherever it is, it's a missionary calling to make disciples. So that that kind of teaching was certainly uh, drilled, drilled into me from a fairly young age. And certainly, I do remember even as it, when I fell in love with the uh, the girl who's now my wife of more than 50 years, uh, Elizabeth as she was then, everybody knows her as Liz. Even from then, when we began to go out together, and we were both Christians, but I said, you know, you need to know that, um, that I have this conviction that I, I am prepared to go wherever God wants me to go. I'm not saying I'm going to go and be a missionary. I didn't know that at that time. I wasn't even thinking necessarily that would be the case. But I said, we, we need to be willing to go wherever God sends us and do whatever he calls us to do anywhere in the world. And uh, that was kind of agreed between us, uh, even at a very early stage of our relationship. It's amazing. What happened next? Did God end up calling you to some far-flung place in the world? <laughs> Not exactly, no, unless unless one calls that England, <laughs> because I certainly did go abroad in that sense. At uh, after after my school years, I went to Cambridge University, uh, and then was a school teacher for a few years in Grosvenor High School, Belfast, and then my wife and I both moved back to well moved to England to Cambridge to do my PhD, and I thought at that time that my future was probably going to lie in theological education possibly in Britain, but possibly somewhere else in the world. Again, I was quite open to t teaching the Bible in some other part of the world. Um, and it was when I got an invitation in 1978 or nine or thereabouts uh, to go and teach the Old Testament in India at the Union Biblical Seminary that we thought and prayed about that, uh, discussed it with some senior colleagues and friends and our, our vicar in the church I belonged to. Uh, and then we eventually did go to India for five years where I was teaching teaching the Old Testament in a seminary there from 1983 to 88. Uh, so that was our cross-cultural mission experience. But I would not say that's when we were missionaries. I would say we all Christians are on mission simply by being disciples. It's just that the location changes. I didn't stop being engaged in God's mission when I came back to Britain, because I'm basically doing the same job, just in a different place. When you say a mission, what do you have in mind? Because sometimes I speak to people and they talk about mission and I suppose they mean evangelism in terms of direct communication with words and preaching the gospel. They'd use language like that. I speak to other people and when they talk about mission, what they have in mind is perhaps more social action, outreach, feeding people. You know, Does mission encompass both of those? Or What do you mean? What do you understand by mission? Well, starting at the end of your question, yes, it certainly does encompass both of those in my understanding, but I wouldn't even start there. I would start with asking, what is God's mission? Because, well, as you know, I've written a book called The Mission of God, 
And the, the title is intentional because we need to start from the point that, that God is the God who sends the Son. The Father sends the Son, the Father and the Son send the Spirit. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. So in that sense, mission begins with God's purposefulness, God's intention. And Paul tells us that uh, it's God's will, God's intention. He says this in Ephesians 1 verse 9 and 10, to bring all things in heaven and on earth, the whole of creation, into a, a reconciled unity, to gather it all together through Christ, under Christ, and because of Christ. So God's mission is cosmic. God has a purpose for creation and within creation for all humanity, for all nations. So in, in my understanding, therefore, whatever mission we have, whatever our purpose in life is as individual believers or as churches, must be consistent, must cohere with what, what God is about in the world. Uh, and God's mission is very big. It, it's, 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 it's not just about, quote, getting people to heaven when they die. God's mission includes all that the Bible tells us that God is concerned about in terms of human society, human flourishing, uh, our, our environment, our uh, trade and industry, uh, our, our, all that we are and do in this world, God is interested in and concerned about and plans to redeem and to bring within to the city of God at the end of the Bible story. So for those reasons, I think we need a, a theology of mission which integrates, that's the word I like to use, which holds together everything that we are here on earth to do, but holds it together around the integrating center of the gospel. By the gospel, I mean the good news that the God who created this world has acted to bring salvation to this world and to his whole creation. And the good news that flows through the Bible, that's centered in Christ, accomplished in the cross and resurrection, that that must be the, the integrating hub, as it were, of everything else that is part of the wheel of mission. Everything else where the rubber hits the road, using that imagery, uh, must be connected to the central uh, truth of the gospel. But the gospel is more than simply words. It's more than just something to be believed. It's something to be obeyed, something to be lived. It's to be demonstrated. We are to become the good news, the gospel, in the way we live as a church. So uh, that's a, a long answer to your question, but I think I do sometimes get a little bit weary of that dichotomy. You know, Is mission about evangelism or is it about social action? And I say, why are you pushing apart what God has joined together? Let's hold together. Uh, the wholeness and the integration of our mission. It surprises me at times as well how often it, it kind of still comes up because yeah, I think the answer you, you've given, I, I can think of a huge number of Christian leaders who would say yes and an amen to that answer. And yet it still seems to be an area where Christians will kind of disagree and struggle a little bit. And, and it strikes me that um, some people are very good at one of those things and perhaps don't appreciate the other. And sometimes there's a need for a bit more understanding and unity around actually both these things matter. We shouldn't be warring against one another, but, but the, the words people need, the actions people, the actions people need, the words people. Although, as you say, even that I appreciate, it's still, it's still a dichotomy that we need to try and move away from, don't we? Yeah, I think so. I know it, it, one of the problems is two, two things. One, because we're very individualistic. And so we say, well, there's only one of me and I can't do all of those things. So therefore, I've got to decide what I want to do. And that's right. Of course you have. Uh, that's why God created the church, because he's given many people many different gifts. And undoubtedly, some are very gifted with the gift of evangelism. God bless them. They do a wonderful work. Others, like myself, God is gifted with the gift of teaching. And Jesus did say in the Great Commission, make disciples teaching them. <laughs> so the teaching ministry is also part of the mission of the church. 
uh, but he also called us to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you, which includes uh, all the works of, of, of generosity and forgiveness and, and compassion and justice that Jesus commanded. So God creates a community of people who together uh, ought to be saying, are we as a church, are we as a community of God's people engaged in the range of activities that would be included within mission? And then we don't need to accuse each other uh, of getting the wrong priority because there are many priorities. It's a question of what is God calling you to do within the broader understanding of mission? Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to ask you, how would you describe your own particular calling within that? Well, it seems to have been teaching, um, uh, whether teaching in a classroom or in the pulpit or in the pages of a book. <laughs> but um, I think, I mean, how do you recognize your own gifts? I mean, partly it's when you, what excites you, what gives you a real thrill and a joy. And for me, uh, even from a younger age, I seem to have enjoyed being able to explain things to other people even as a child at school, you know, if, if something wasn't clear to me, I was very frustrated until I got it clear. Uh, and if I could then get it clear and explain it to somebody else, that was fun. And then I was a school teacher for a few years. And again, I just remember, as I, I taught classics uh, in school, Latin and Greek and ancient history and religious education. And I remember the, the thrill it was in a classroom to see young 12, 13 year olds who had to learn Latin. In those days, Latin was a compulsory subject. Um, and suddenly seeing the lights go on in somebody's eyes when they understand the difference between the nominative and accusative, you know, or how a verb works and what the difference is between a verb and that. And when you just see people getting it, uh, I enjoy that. And then um, as a student, being involved with the Christian Union uh, and leading Bible studies and, you know, getting joy from being able to explain the scriptures within a group. Uh, or ask questions that help people to understand a text. So bit by bit, you begin to realize, yes, this this is actually what I think um, somehow by God's grace and God's help I can do well, you know. And uh, and so you, you learn how to put words together, how to explain, how to be simple. And then I also think um, by God's grace, I had the experience of cross-cultural teaching. That is, I taught in India for five years teaching in English, but to um, about two or three hundred students, for most of whom English was their second, third or fourth language. Uh, the teaching had to be in English because, as you know, India is multilingual. There's so many different regional languages. And so in a classroom, you learn how to communicate in words that are simple and straightforward and not very complicated sentences, not lots of British humor, <laughs> just, just uh, stick to what needs to be said. And then for 13 years, I was teaching at All Nations Christian College, as you mentioned. And at All Nations, only about half the students were British. Uh, about a quarter came from continental Europe and the other quarter from the rest of the world. So for half the students, again, English was not their first language. So again, you just sort of instinctively learn how to communicate and therefore later to write uh, with reasonable clarity and try and make things as clear as possible. So I think that's what God has enabled me to do, to be, is someone who can, as best as possible, understand the scriptures for myself uh, and then see how to relate it to other people, whether preaching through preaching uh, through, or through teaching or through writing books that people can hopefully find helpful. Mm. Where is that, that verse in the New Testament? I'd, I'd love to, to get your view on that, that I think some some teachers 
you know, preachers and local church perhaps find it slightly scary, uh, where it says in the New Testament, not many of you should presume to become teachers. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of warning there. And, and I, I'd love to hear your view on that verse, if you, if you have a view on it. But, but kind of secondly as well, what have been the issues where perhaps you've changed your mind over the years and you, you've looked again at a passage and thought, oh, I'd, my theology needs to shift actually, because as I've learned and gone on and studied, um, I've changed my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly that, that verse you quoted comes from James, uh, and he says, not many of you should be teachers because, he says, those of us who teach will be exposed to greater judgment. And and he's right, because, of course, the, the responsibility of teaching is the possibility of false teaching, that you teach people what is wrong. And I agree with you, that is scary. And and I I do I do take it seriously. I, I quite often pray uh, that the way I'm understanding something and the way I'm preaching and teaching something that God would protect me from leading people into error. And from time to time when I'm teaching, especially on on controversial subjects, I will say, now look, this is how it appears to me. This is what I believe is the Bible's teaching here. But it is, of course, possible that I might be wrong. And you need to think this through for yourselves. You need to, and, and sometimes I'll say there's some people think this and others think that. Um, and so we have to decide and on this issue. Um, and that also means that people sometimes ask me, are you still nervous when you preach? <laughs> and I have to say, yes, every time. Every time I give a lecture or I preach beforehand, I'm concerned. I, I'm, 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 I'm not nervous in the sense of that I, I think I'll not be able to do it. I, I know I can do it, but I'm I'm, I want to make sure that I'm clear, that uh, I stick to my time, uh, that I get across what God wants to be got across. And so in those hours before I speak or preach or teach, um, I still feel that nervousness. It doesn't necessarily show, but uh, it's it's part of, of being, I suppose, a responsible preacher or a teacher, is that you realize, as Peter says, that those who speak, he says, if, as one of the gifts, should do so uh, as speaking the very words of God, which doesn't mean that I can say, thus saith the Lord, every time I open my mouth like a prophet, but it does mean that when I take the Bible on my lips and speak about the Bible, I am speaking about the words of God. And that's a serious responsibility which any preacher needs to take seriously. Um, I don't, I'm not conscious of having majorly changed my mind on anything over the years, but I have, I would have said, for example, I grew up in Northern Ireland, um, the very you know, strong kind of fairly conservative evangelical Protestantism. Um, I would say that probably my upbringing was fairly what would now be called complementarian in terms of an understanding of what women could and couldn't do in a church and so on. Uh, my study of the text has led me to less of a position of that. To I, I actually hate the word egalitarian and complementarian. I think they're very misleading and not very useful, uh, but much more to a position uh, that that the the gifts of the Spirit are given without regard uh, to gender, and that God's gifting of women and men across the range of, of spiritual gifts is equal. Um, so in that sense, I would now see somewhat different from where I am now, from where I probably was uh, as a younger person growing up in Northern Ireland. I think my understanding of Mission also deepened and changed through living in India and experiencing uh, the realities of teaching the Bible 
in a context where some of the issues in the Bible, like Baalism in the Old Testament, uh, fertility cults, polytheism, many gods, very prominent in India, uh, and therefore you relate the Old Testament directly to that culture. And then you come back to Britain and you see that, well, we don't have statues of gods, as it were, in, in temples, but we have temples of mammon. We've got shopping malls, we've got like cathedrals to mammon, uh, we've got idolatries of racism, uh, of Christian nationalism, um, uh, of the idolatry of the self uh, in, in social media and so on. So I, the idols of our culture are very real. And so I've learned how to see some of the biblical texts, which in the past tended to be, quote, missionary texts directed at other people and other cultures and other religions as being equally powerful and even more so to those who like to think of themselves as living in Christian countries or uh, within a kind of Christendom mentality. So yeah, uh, one's thinking and use of the Bible and recognition of the application of the Bible has developed and moved on over the years. Really fascinated um, by how traveling and, and as you say, living in India, experiencing another culture can can kind of shape shape and change us. And and the, the area I'm, I'm I suppose most interested in is um, things that I have assumed are quote unquote biblical values or biblical ideas. When you travel a little bit, you realize are they actually biblical or are they? cultural are they western are they european values and sometimes i think as christians we can get those confused can't we and think yeah well this is just the, the right way of doing things you think well is it the right way because actually there's christians in another nation who think about that in a completely different way and sometimes these things are more cultural dependent i don't know if you have any examples of that sort of thing that you might have encountered in, in india or other places where you've met christians and thought oh wow you have a, a completely different view on this perhaps passage of scripture in part because of the culture you live in Mm. And we can learn something from what, from one another as we try and disentangle what is what is cultural and what is truly biblical. Yeah, that's a very good point, Sam, and I quite agree with you. Um, the one example I could give from India was actually a personal experience, um, and it wasn't so much of um, cultural values making one thing right and another thing wrong, or two different Christians, but my recognition that there is such a thing as ethical priorities. We all have a relativity scale of what we think is more important than other things, even though they're all good things. So, for example, as a Western-educated teacher, uh, I place an almost ultimate priority on integrity, uh, academic integrity. You don't plagiarize, you don't copy. Uh, anything like that is absolute no-no. It's a complete failure. And that's uh, one of the highest values connected, from a Christian point of view, of course, connected to the sacredness of truth, uh, that we must be honest. And anything that's dishonest um, is simply wrong. Um, but what do you do when you're confronted with a student in your, in your office whom you have failed in an exam? Uh, in tears because they say, I cannot go back to my family and my bishop. Um, I've come to this college, they paid for you to be here. Uh, it will bring a disgrace upon them uh, if I fail. Uh, and you suddenly, and, and you realize that it's not because, um, and it was, it was not just it failed, that there was actually um, some cheating involved. Um, it wasn't because he thought that what he had done was okay. He knew it was wrong. But it wasn't as wrong as bringing shame on his family. Now, to me, it was the other way around. You know, I would want to say, you know, my truth is more important than my my family. But for him, the family is more important than the truth 
it was a it was a moral relativism uh, around these things. Where did you put it in order? And I was challenged to think. Yeah, well, this is because in his culture, family has such a high value, um, and and honouring your family, doing right for your family, that is his absolute priority. And one wants to say, and what's wrong with that? <laughs> you know, um, and in the West. Our understanding of family has become so weakened. You know, we we could in some ways we couldn't care less about you know those sorts of issues. Families become so attenuated in Western culture with the hyper individualism that we've now got. And so I thought, yes, I'm I'm I have to uphold a biblical standard of truth, but I want to try to recognize where he's coming from in terms of his moral scale of values as distinct from mine. It was a very difficult decision because, in the end, I had to stick by, you know, the academic integrity. But it made me think about where we place our moral hotspots and our moral blind spots uh, in society, and uh, and that, of course, is true right across the range. As evangelical Christians, we tend to be very hot on issues of sexuality and very blind often on other issues that the Bible is very hot on as well, such as poverty and injustice and oppression. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I find that within our British culture very distressing, uh, that, you know, some of our politicians can get away with all sorts of things in the area of what they do to the poor and the needy and uh, lack of integrity and lying and everything else. But if they get caught out on a sexual issue, oh, that's terrible. And then it's all over the papers uh, and everything becomes very, uh, very lurid and maybe they have to resign uh, over something you know relatively minor in in biblical terms compared with what's happening in society for which they are held accountable to God according to the scriptures so the whole idea of cultural relativity and moral issues is is a, a, a challenging one which living in another culture sometimes helps you to see with uh, with greater clarity too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective. It's time to discover Premier Christianity. Balanced, confident, relevant, faith-filled. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. Now only five pounds for three months. Even at the time we're recording this, we've just had the Church of England General Synods, and um, it wouldn't matter if we we're recording this interview 20 years ago or or today, I could say the same thing, which is that General Synod has been discussing sexuality. And as you say, it's, it's one of those issues across the church, but certainly in the Anglican Communion and the Church of England that just comes up time and time again. Is that in itself a bit of a frustration of yours and thinking there's lots of other equally or even more important things that we should be discussing? Well, yes, um, it is a frustration partly for that reason. Um, I'm not frustrated by it in the sense that it is an important ethical, biblical, and gospel issue that the church ought to be getting right and where I think at the moment the church, in my opinion, is getting it wrong. Um, so I'm not wanting to suggest that it's a minor issue by any means. We we do have to... I mean, our, our, our sexuality is is a, an integral part of what God created us to be as as human beings, as men and women made in the image of God. So it's a very important biblical matter, 
and and the Bible does give a lot of attention to it, and God speaks very severely about the places where he believes uh, human beings need to exercise sexual intimacy and where it is not right for that to happen. We don't need to go there in this conversation, but I think I don't want to say by any means that the church gets obsessed with sex and, and, and it's wrong to do so. And I would also say that in, in some areas, uh, the Church the Church of England and the archbishops have spoken out on issues of, of other, other areas of morality, on issues, for example, of immigration, of racism, of poverty and injustice and so on. So it's not that they've been completely silent on those issues. Um, I would want to say that I wish that an issue like this one, the issue of sexuality, would not so dominate uh, churches, including evangelical churches, that we then, you know, omit and forget about what we're actually here on earth to be and do, which is to get engaged in God's mission and bringing people to know the Lord Jesus Christ and engaging in society for the purposes of God's kingdom. So uh, we we keep uh, certainly at my own church at All Souls Church, Langham Place. We want to say that we we've we've got to be clear where we stand on that issue, the issue of sexuality, but we don't want it to deflect us to absorb all our time and to ignore uh, the ministries and missional opportunities that God gives us in London to be serving Christ and serving the city for God's for God's glory. So let's be and do what God calls us to be and do while seeking at the same time to be clear on on where we stand on that particular issue, but not let it so dominate our agenda and our mind space that we get deflected from from what we're called to do. The overall numbers on, on the Church of England have been negative for, for some time, and it's not the only denomination. Many of the traditional denominations are, are struggling. If you look at church attendance, and even if you look at the wider surveys on perception of Christianity in the UK, how many people are identifying as Christian, all, all the numbers are downwards. Do you have a view on why that is, let alone how we might then reverse that? How have we got to a point where fewer and fewer people are, are going to church, fewer and fewer people even have a uh, a, health, a healthy or a positive perception of, of Christianity? Well, you're asking me almost to be pr- uh, a prophet, and I'm not. <laughs> I, I mean, the, clearly that is happening within um, Western people. That there, there has been a process for the last 300 years since the Enlightenment in which um, Euro-American British people, the sort of the, the broadly Western European culture has so-called secularized. That is, we have more or less said um, God is irrelevant to anything to do with real public life. And uh, for for ordinary everyday life, we don't need God. So God can stay there, a bit like a constitutional monarch. You know, I mean, it's, it's ironic that we um, we just had the coronation of, of King Charles, which is wonderful. Um, but all the symbols of power and authority and glory are all loaded onto him and to his head and everything else. He gets all these swords and crimes and everything else. And yet we know that actually, uh, for everyday real life, he is irrelevant in, in terms of power, actual power. Um, the power in the building was sitting a few rows back <laughs> with um, the prime minister and the government and so on. Now, some people want to treat God like that, that God's okay, you can have him there as a figurehead, but really he's irrelevant to everyday life. And that's what Western culture has been doing. So it's not, in that sense, not surprising that the church, which to some degree has colluded with that, the church has been almost happy to say, yes, well, this is our faith, this is our belief, and and we will simply 
forget to talk about the gospel as public truth or the Bible as the true story of the universe. We sort of retreat into the private sphere that the Enlightenment Project wants to put us. But I would want to balance that by saying, yes, that, that in a broad sense that's true, but it's not the only truth about uh, the Christian Church in Britain or indeed in Europe, because there are remarkable signs in some places of the growth of the Church. Uh, there are great numbers of churches uh, of believers from uh, the um, ethnic minority communities in this country. There are African churches, Caribbean churches, Chinese churches. Uh, it's not that the church itself is dead in Britain. And similarly, one hears good reports, especially among young people connected with the Lausanne movement, of some quite remarkable turnings to Christ in Europe, uh, even including in France, which is one of the most secular countries in Europe. So God is not dead uh, and his church is not dead, even if uh, numbers in that sense are declining. And then one would have to point out the fact that while church growth is declining in the West, the church is multiplying in other parts of the world, in Africa and some parts of Asia and Latin America. So as it has been throughout church history, uh, the church sometimes will shrink in one place and grow in another, but overall continue to grow because it's God's kingdom and, and God will bring growth. The fruit will come, uh, but not necessarily always in the same place. Brings us very nicely onto the Langham Partnership, um, which I'll let you explain a, a little bit about. But but from, from what I've read, that's the contention that Christianity is spreading rapidly in the majority world. On the Langham Partnership website, it says in Asia alone, the growth of Christianity is twice as fast as the growth of the general population. Um, but I guess Langham's contention is, and, and you have a role within Langham, that the contention is that often pastors abroad have not received good training and there's a, a need to combat things like the growth of the prosperity gospel in Africa. Can you speak a little bit to, to that, your role within Langham, what the, mm. what the big picture idea is and, um, and why that ministry you think is, is needed at this time? Yes, I'm very happy to do that. Thank you. The word Langham was used, first of all, by John Stott as the name of a, a trust that he founded when John Stott was the rector of All Souls Church Langham Place in London. And around about 1969-70, um, he started a, a trust fund, didn't want to name it after himself, so he simply called it the Langham Trust, which was just the name of the street where his church is. So that's the that's the origin of the name. Dare, dare, I, say, dare I say that was a wise move, not to name a ministry after himself. I mean, one can think of some recent examples of people who name ministries after themselves and you know, mm. it's not yep. it's not gone well, has it? Absolutely. No, you're you're quite right. Now he, in fact, in the, in the United States for a while, what had been initially called the Langham Foundation uh, to support John Stott's ministries, they renamed themselves John Stott Ministries (JSM) at a board meeting that he was not present, <laughs> and he was not best pleased. Um, they explained, of course, that they needed to do it because everybody in the states knew who John Stott was, but nobody knew what Langham was, so that's why they used his name. But he refused to. He he would not even refer. He would talk about. You may have heard of the ministry that bears some resemblance to my name. He would say, um, and indeed, uh, in the year before he died, he requested the our, our American friends in Lang in JSM to change the name back to Langham Partnership USA, which they did. I'm glad to say. So Langham is now one ministry throughout the world. There are supporting groups in the states, in the UK, in Australia, Canada, and so on. But the, the main, yeah, as you said, the main motivating factor was that John Stott was traveling a lot in the 1960s in the majority world, as we now call it, like the global south, 
And he did observe that the church is growing evangelistically very fast, but often, as he would say, it was growth without depth. He was always very careful to say that that is not a feature only of the church outside the West. He would say it's universal. He would say also in the West, the church may not be growing, but it certainly lacks depth. You know, there, there is shallowness and immaturity everywhere. But at least in the West, we have the resources to combat it. We have seminaries, we have books, we have publishers, we, you know, there's training courses. Uh, there's no excuse for us in the West to be a shallow church without maturity and depth. We, we have every resource available to do that. Whereas in many countries of Africa and Asia, uh, when people come to faith in Christ or become pastors of churches, they have no resources. There are no books, um, th there's no good quality education and so on. And so John set himself to address that, the, the needs of the church outside the West. And so there are the three programs, very, very quickly. Uh, the first was Langham Scholars, which was to enable uh, gifted men and women who have got academic ability to get a doctorate, to a PhD in the Bible and theology, and then become teachers in seminaries. And over the 50 years or more now, there are more than 350 Langham Scholars, as we call them, and as they call themselves, who are teaching in seminaries uh, in about 90 different countries. And some seminaries have been transformed by that. The, the whole seminary education has improved and grown uh, and deepened because of the presence of men and women who have got the level of theological education. So that was one. And then the second was literature, because he saw that pastors have no books. And so how can they preach if they can't study if they have no books? So the um, Evangelical Literature Trust, now Langham Literature, is seeking to get books into the hands of pastors and students and uh, uh, seminary libraries around the world, and not only to send Western books, we, we still do do that, but also to encourage the creation, editing, and writing of indigenous Christian literature. Uh, so we support some evangelical publishers in different countries, and we have commissioning editors in Asia and Africa, uh, and um, Central Europe and the Middle East and so on, who enable us to identify uh, indigenous writers and authors so that we can then be publishing books through Langham Literature, which will meet the needs of their context, including whole Bible commentaries, uh, one-volume commentaries for Africa and South, South Asia and uh, uh, Central Europe and so on. And then the third program was Langham Preaching, which is actually getting hands-on with uh, men and women in order to help them to understand how do you handle the Bible well, how do you turn the text of the Bible into a, a meaningful sermon, which is clear, which is faithful to the text of the scripture and which is relevantly applied to the people. And so Langham Preaching is now operating again in about 90 countries uh, around the world to, to enhance the, uh, to strengthen the ministry of the word so that the church can be deepened in its maturity and then more effective in its mission. It strikes me as quite sobering um, that in the same way we often remark, you know, we, we as Western Christians have access to the scriptures in, I think, hundreds of different translations available and yet as as we know there are some some people with not a single translation in their own language it strikes me there's, there's a similar point in what you've just said there about actually pastors in other parts of the world that don't have the basic bible commentary books resources that the average pastor here has bookshelves and bookshelves full. there's something quite sobering about that isn't there that, that there is actually we have christians brothers and sisters that that really quite desperately need some some pretty basic by western standards sort of resources you're absolutely right. It, it, it is very sobering, and in some ways it's actually quite rebuking because there is what has been called biblical injustice. That's to say, 
we in the West can argue over whether the NIV is really a good translation and is the ESV better and so on. And you have whole church denominations in the States, you know, making big statements and arguments about that. That's such a luxury that we actually got two translations of the whole Bible when there are, you know, as you said, uh, millions of our brothers and sisters around the world and uh, those who've not yet heard the gospel for whom in their language there's no part of the Bible at all or only one one section. Uh, and that's simply wrong. And so, therefore, yes, we, we are great, for, you know, we're very grateful in Langham for ministries such as the Bible Societies and the Wycliffe Bible Translators, SIL, and other agencies that are doing Bible translation because it's a very challenging and needed task but Langham comes along in a sense at the next stage, which is to help those who are getting Bible in their own language to understand it. And so, for, and that's why we've commissioned these very large one-volume commentaries on the whole Bible. There's one also in Arabic, and these are produced not they're not translations of Western Bible commentaries into some other language. These are written in um, the by scholars, evangelicals from their own region, whether it's the Middle East or Africa or Central Eastern Europe or Latin America. We have a Latin American Bible commentary in Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, and so for a pastor then to have a Bible in his own language and a commentary on that part of the Bible, uh, not not a detailed critical commentary like we might have on our shelf, but something that helps them to get hold of that text and to understand it in their context and then to explain and preach it. That is an enormous gift um, throughout the world. And there are, as I say, there are now close to a dozen of these commentaries that Langham has been involved with. And I suppose that's that's quite important, that the fact that these are people in, in those nations being raised up to, to write and con contribute. That would counter an accusation or a perception that there's a, a kind of white saviorism going on mm. here, because there, there might be a perception that Langham's coming along, white, wealthy Westerners, turning up in other nations and saying, hey, we know everything, we've got all the commentaries, you know, follow all of our material. Yeah, can you just talk about how, how that's not what you're trying to do and how you would kind of combat that kind of criticism? I'd be interested, though, even if Langham's approach has had to change over time to take into account those shifting understandings, this isn't as healthy or as, as helpful as might have been assumed in the past, and we want to be raising up people in their own location. You're, you're absolutely right, Sam. Thank you for raising that. And certainly, if one goes back to John Stott himself, uh, he would have been—he you know, would have found the whole idea of white saviorism, as you call it, a good, quite good term, abhorrent. Um, he was, of course, himself English, uh, and uh, very much so, uh, very much the product of his environment. But he had travelled, he had listened, he had uh, really got alongside um, men and women in Africa, in Latin America, listened to them and, and heard their cries, their voices. And with amazing respect, he honored them. Uh, he loved them. He was genuinely befriended them and knew that he needed to learn from them, which he did. And so therefore, Langham has always had as part of its DNA, the desire that comes from John Stott, which was a good biblical desire based on the scriptures, that those who have resources need to be willing to share them. I mean, Paul says that in his collection, you know, from the Greeks for the for the Jewish Christians, just as they had shared the gospel, so we share with them. So there's this mutual sharing that is very biblical, which John Stott wanted to, to do. But he was also very keen that as soon as possible, the leadership of these ministries ought to be in indigenous hands. That is, it should, it should, as soon as possible, not be west to the rest or, you know, we know best. Uh, it, it might well continue to be that uh, the, the, the bulk of the 
the funding that what's needed to support the budgets of these ministries uh, will come from Western churches, which have more wealth. But the actual vision casting and the strategic planning and the implementation on the ground is now in Langham almost entirely within the hands of people who live in those continents. So, for example, the, the head of the Langham Scholar Program is a, a wonderful brother called Dr. Riyad Cassis, who is from Lebanon and lives in Lebanon. And, and he is an Arab and very proud of being an Arab Christian. Uh, the, the leader of our um, literature program has only just begun, having taken over from Peter Quant, is another Arab Christian, but this time from Egypt, Hani Hanna, uh, who has taken over there. Um, in the Langham Preaching Program, there's a, the, the overall leader is a, a brother from New Zealand, Paul Windsor, but his global leadership team includes uh, the, the continental leader from, from Africa, Femi Adeleye, the continental leader from Latin America, uh, Igor Amestegui from Bolivia, and each of the continents has a continental director and regional leadership team, and then each national movement has a national committee with its own indigenous leadership who have gone through training uh, and are now training others. So almost the whole of our Langham preaching movement is not white Westerners coming along and saying, this is how you do it, uh, but indigenous people from their own national saying, this is how we want to preach the Bible. The big thing is, let it be the Bible that we're preaching, not just multiple stories or your latest idea, but what is what is John saying here? What is Paul saying here? What is Isaiah saying here? And how does this connect with our culture and, and, and what we are experiencing? So I think we're not there completely yet. Langham is, you know, we're learning on this, but we're certainly, our, our whole desire is to be a global family, a fellowship, which is genuinely uh, representative of the global church. And even our international council uh, now has uh, as many international members from the majority world as uh, Western members from the supporting countries. It's it's very much a global fellowship. Actually, at the beginning, one of your latest books is entitled The Great Story and the Great Commission, Participating in the Biblical Drama of Mission. Tell me, uh, tell me why you've taken this, this book on, uh, what you're hoping it will achieve. Um, the book arose, really, as as you said, I have been writing and thinking about biblical theology of mission for many years, um, and I was asked to give some lectures on that at a, a at a, a named lecture university in the Canada, Acadia School of Divinity, and the part of the deal was that the lectures would then be published. So it emerged from that, but then, as always happens, it got extended to book size from just three lectures. The main point of the book is. Uh, at least it's a book it's like football it's in two halves <laughs> um, and the first half is trying to argue that really we need to see the Bible as one whole drama story it, it's one whole narrative it begins with creation it ends with new creation and in between there are these different acts of the drama along the way including of course the central act of the cross and resurrection of Christ but take seriously the creation story the fall the story of Israel the story of Christ and then the mission of the church in Act 5, and then final judgment and new creation. So the question is, what happens when we treat the Bible like that? How does it affect our worldview? How does it affect the way we read the Scriptures? Uh, how does it impact the way we live as Christians in that story? So it's not a question of, I must, you know, here, here's my Bible, I must apply the Bible to my life. It's saying, this Bible is the story in which I participate. I'm in the Bible. 
Uh, I'm part of God's story. So how do I live as an actor in the drama of Scripture? Uh, what is consistent with God's story? So that's that's really what the first part of the book is, is trying to do, to help us to take the Bible in that way. But then the second half of the book is saying, but if that is the case, this story is the story of God's mission. So in what way do I participate in the mission of God? And that picks up um, a phrase that actually comes from the Anglican Communion back in 1984. They published a thing called the Five Marks of Mission. And they said that the five marks of mission are, yes, evangelism, the kingdom of God. Secondly, discipling and teaching. And then thirdly, works of love and mercy and compassion. But fourthly, uh, seeking God's justice and to ch challenge the unjust structures of society. And fifthly, uh, the stewardship and care of God's creation. Uh, because we were put on earth to care for God's creation, to rule it and care for it. The, the first great commission is actually there in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, and we didn't stop being human beings when we became Christians. You know, we're still responsible for our humanity as well as our Christianity. So here's the, these five areas of evangelism, teaching, uh, compassion, justice, and, uh, and creation care. And I then group them into three. The first two are building the church through evangelism and teaching. And the second two, are the, the third and fourth, are serving society and then caring for creation. So the, the second half of the book, is really trying to say what what are these how do we engage in these areas of mission with biblical integrity how do we connect these areas of mission to the great commission so called and i think they're all directly or indirectly created and how do we make sure that our engagement in mission is actually a participation in the story that stretches from creation to new creation uh, and not just about getting saved now and going to heaven when you die but that it's actually a whole life thing uh, and a big story thing. It is available now wherever good books are sold. And, um, you know, it, I was reminded um, of a friend of mine who spoke, it wasn't you, it spoke about another biblical scholar. And his phrase was, oh, that scholar writes faster than most people speak. And I was reminded of that because you have not one, but two books out. Um, I don't know if you do write faster than most people speak. Um, but you certainly write quickly because there's, there's another book um, that's that's released uh, this month and it's called Hearing the Message of Ecclesiastes. So before we go, I wanted to talk about that as well. Ecclesiastes, one of those books that, uh, if I'm honest, I think a lot of Christians are unsure what to do with it. You know, how would you answer that question of, you know, what exactly am I supposed to get out of Ecclesiastes of a, yeah. as a modern a modern Christian in the indeed. 21st century? What do I do with this book? Yeah, well, as a modern or indeed a postmodern Christian, because actually it's sometimes been said to be one of the most postmodern books in, in the Bible because it addresses some of the questions that people are asking today. In fact, I met somebody when I, long time ago, when I first did some teaching on Ecclesiastes when I was a curate in Tunbridge, and they said, oh, I'm a Christian because of Ecclesiastes. They said they'd had a time in their life when they were about to give up, literally. They were they were suicidal because they thought, you know, life is not worth living. Uh, there's, there's no point. It's all meaningless. And then they read Ecclesiastes, and they said, this guy is saying exactly what I think and what I feel. So if God allows this book to be in the Bible, maybe I should stick it out a bit longer and find out a bit more. So it, it is a book which addresses those kind of problems. It's called Hearing the Message of Ecclesiastes, and the subtitle is Questioning Faith in a Baffling World, and it's published by Zondervan. Uh, and that subtitle, Questioning Faith, is um, intentionally ambiguous because it, it doesn't mean that we are questioning our faith, or does it mean that our faith is a faith that is able to ask questions? 
And in a sense, it's both. Uh, because I think Ecclesiastes is, well, first of all, to answer your question, how do we read it? We should not read it as if it were the Gospel of John or the letter to the Romans uh, or even the book of Deuteronomy or something. It, it, it is a book which is in a genre of its own, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's a genre in which people felt free to ask questions and to raise some of the tough issues that life throws at us. Um the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is by no means an atheist. He thoroughly believes in God, but that's part of his problem. If there's only one living God and he's supposed to be sovereign over all the world and he's supposed to be good and everything else, then why is the world like it is? The world is a mess. Everything is absurd. There's stupid things happen. In the end, we die. Uh, and when you die, you don't even know what happens next, according to him at that stage. Uh, and so really what was the point of being wise rather than being a fool if when you're dead, there's no difference between a dead wise man and a dead fool. And actually there's no difference between a dead man and a dead dog uh, in purely corporal terms. So here's a book which wrestles with, I would say, the conflict between Genesis 1 and 2, which tell us that this is a good world because God made it a good world. And Ecclesiastes affirms that seven times in his book, that it is good. Our English translations say there's nothing better than to eat and drink and find pleasure in your work and so on. And we sometimes could read that there's nothing better than as if it were very cynical, you know, like you say to a waiter in the restaurant, oh, this is rubbish. Have you got nothing better than this? You know, it, it sounds very negative. I don't, that's not the way the Hebrew reads. He means it of face value. There is nothing better. This is good. Uh, living in God's world uh, eating, drinking, uh, getting married, getting work, doing your work. These are all good gifts of God. But in a good world of those things, we live with the Genesis 3 reality that we live a world of dust and death and fallenness and brokenness and absurdity and so much just seems meaningless and pointless. How do we put these things together? And I think Ecclesiastes, the, the, the character in the book who's called Koheleth, which is a Hebrew word that just means a teacher or a a philosopher or a pundit or a guru or something like that. He's on a journey. He's exploring. It's, it's a kind of, uh, let's find out if this will work or that will work. And he keeps on coming back to this, saying, by reason alone, by empirical observation alone, I cannot find the meaning of life. But he keeps coming back. And in the end, the book comes back to saying that, but this has to be exercised under the God who is our creator, the God whom we need to remember, the God who will ultimately bring all things into judgment, which doesn't mean he's a spoiled sport. It means that God is the God who will see what was right and wrong, who will make a distinction between the good and the evil and the wise and the foolish. Uh, so God is in charge and we have to trust him. And therefore, at the very end of the book, it says, so what we need to remember is that the fear of the Lord uh, and doing what is right, those are the things that we can do, even with all these questions. And my last point would be, of course, we have to read Ecclesiastes within the context of the whole of the Scripture. It's, it is the truth, but it's not the whole truth. And that's, a, that's an important difference. And Ecclesiastes did not know about the Incarnation, that God himself would enter this world of, of, of baffling meaninglessness. He didn't know about the cross and resurrection, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God would banish futility and frustration, as Paul says in Romans 8. And he didn't know about the new creation in which there will be no more sin or curse or bafflement or evil or frustration. Uh, he didn't know those things. So we need to read Ecclesiastes within the context of the whole uh, and hear what it has to say uh, in, in that context. 
I doubt there is a better four-minute explanation of the meaning of Ecclesiastes. That was wonderful, Christopher. Thank you so much. And uh, either one will be buying the book. I'll, I'll be buying the book to get, get even more detail on it. Sadly, we've run out of time, but thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been wonderful to hear about your work and your writing, and uh, thank you for sharing with us. Thank you, Sam. It's good to be with you. Thank you. God bless. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.